0: You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, who was to come into the world. supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached a place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took the stone, so they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus come out the dead man came out his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face Jesus said to them take off the grave clothes and let him go so we've been looking at the I am sayings of Jesus and in John chapter 11 we have the last in the series that we've been looking at where Jesus says I am the resurrection and the life uh, John 11 is also a pivotal chapter in the Gospel of John because the first 10 chapters talk about Jesus's ministry and his teaching. The last half of the book is going to talk about Jesus's time prior to his crucifixion as he heads and spends time in Jerusalem. So I thought it'd be good for us to look at this passage, not only from this narrative of the raising of Lazarus, but it's very clear that the raising of Lazarus foreshadows Jesus Christ's death and resurrection that will come. And so we're gonna see there's some similarities between them, but also some very marked differences. But I thought for this Resurrection Sunday, based on this narrative, I want three words to keep and stay with us. Uh, the first one is simply delay. Uh, the second is declaration. And the third is decision. So you've got delay, declaration, and decision. Because we're very mindful that what Jesus says and does here is a powerful means of confirming who he is. So let's start with the first one, simply delay. Uh, if you look at verse 17, Jesus does travel to Bethany, the home of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus who had passed away. And we're clearly told that he arrives there four days after Lazarus has already been dead and placed in this tomb. Uh, Now we know at least based on what you read in the first part of chapter 11, that Jesus was told that Lazarus was sick at least three days before he died. And so, you have messengers being sent. Uh, Jesus is about a day's journey from Bethany when this takes place. And, and oddly enough, in this scene, Jesus is told this, and it says purposely that he stayed another two days where he was. Uh, and I don't know about you, but that could, should kind of strike us as why the delay? Imagine if one of you sent word to me that you were sick. Uh, extremely sick, you were in the hospital, and I said, "Oh, that's that's so sad. I'm so sad to hear that." And then I purposely did not move from where I was for another two days. You can imagine at least some of the thoughts you might be having is, "Doesn't he care? What? Why the delay?" And so, in thinking about this first aspect of here we are rejoicing in the resurrection. And yet, we live in a day and an age where people are dying of viruses. Uh, We live in a day and a time where all of us have different physical ailments and difficulties. Uh, We have economic concerns, we have other things. Why is it that Jesus doesn't just return? Why is it that the reality of the resurrection is both a present and a future comfort and security? Well, let's look at this subject of delay. If you go back in chapter 11, look at verse 4. So verse 4, John wants us to understand that delay had nothing to do with lack of love for Lazarus or Mary or Martha. But in verse 4, it says, when he heard this, meaning the message that was delivered, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. The delay was intentional. Uh, It was according to God's design. And clearly it says here, the delay was one, that God would be glorified through this. The second was that the Son of God would be glorified through this. And, And that word glorify means... Uh, to be praised or honored or valued. So what might appear from our perspective as an unfortunate delay, a delay that seems somewhat mysterious from our side of it, uh, given the fact that Jesus clearly says he loved Lazarus, he loved Mary, Martha as well, that the delay is intentional. But Go on a little bit further in chapter 11, go down to verses 14 and 15. There Jesus explains the delay to his disciples. It says, so then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. I think of the irony in this statement, Jesus As you follow and track this scene, they kind of misunderstand what Jesus means when he says Lazarus is asleep. And they're thinking, well, if he's resting, he'll get over whatever's bothering him. And then Jesus has to clarify and say, he's he's not sleeping. He's, He's dead. But then think of what he says next. I am glad that I was not there. Now, he said he loved them. And maybe part of that message went back from the messengers They may have left, Jesus said. He's deeply concerned for all of you. But yet, the reality is Lazarus dies. But here he explains it to his disciples and says, "I, I rejoice in this, not that Lazarus died, but that God is going to use this delay that you may believe. So keep thinking about what does Jesus mean when he says to his disciples, who clearly do believe in him, that the delay is intentional also that they might believe. And then go down to verse 17, and in verse 17 and 39, two times it's mentioned that Lazarus has been dead for four days. So that's even referenced when Martha's referring to, you know, why roll away the stone? You realize how much he's going to smell because he's clearly dead. He's been dead for four days. And this reminds us another aspect of the delay that would make sense culturally. And that is, it is true in the first century in Judaism, uh, as is true today, burials are often done the first day after death. Uh, And there's a reason for that in Judaism. uh, They believe that the body must return to the ground. So from earth to earth, dust to dust, ashes to ashes, they believe the body must be buried as quickly as possible so the soul can depart from the body. So this is a Jewish understanding. And from the first century perspective, there was the teaching that, although that was true, that the soul sort of hovered around the body, kind of trying to get back in for a period of three days. But after the decomposition set in, the, the spirit and soul sort of realized it could not enter and then would depart. In other words, the delay would also have been intentional to clearly verify that Lazarus was dead. His spirit had left him, departed. He, he did not merely mean to be need to be resuscitated, but but he was dead and it would require a miracle to raise him back to life. Now all of these speak of the delay that was intentional to glorify God. Fast forward to to you and me today in Christ. We know that Jesus is going to return, and yet in between that promised return, the future blessings that go with that, we live in the present reality of a world marked by sin and suffering. That we sing that he is risen, we know that, and yet we deal with trials and difficulties. The delay is intentional. And not just that more people might come to know him as Lord and Savior, but could we argue that the delay is also that in those who know Christ, that we might believe, just like he said to the disciples, I'm, I'm glad we weren't there. So when, when we go together, you might believe. And keep that phrase just in the back of your thinking. What does Jesus mean by that, that you may believe? Because they already did confess their faith and confidence and trust in him. So that introduces us to this aspect of delay. A delay that would not make sense from one side, from Mary and Martha and their family. You know, Jesus loves Lazarus. Why didn't he come right away? But then we get to the second term, and that is looking at declaration because there is a death-defying claim that Jesus makes. And, and in chapter 11, we not only have the I am saying, I am the resurrection and the life, but the raising of Lazarus will be the seventh sign in God's in John's gospel as a testimony that Jesus is who he said he is. So if you were to go through the Gospel of John, There are seven particular miraculous signs Jesus does to confirm his identity as the Messiah. The first is turning the water into wine in John chapter 2, and this will be the last of the seven signs. So what is being declared here? Well, let's take a look at verse 33. So we think of Easter is preceded by Good Friday, that there be no celebration of a resurrection if there was not first the humiliation, incarnation, suffering of Jesus Christ. So notice in John 11, verse 33, there we read, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Now, Jesus is going to make a phenomenal declaration. But keep in mind that the future glory is always preceded by present suffering and trials. That is true as God's working in the lives of, as we'll say, Mary and Martha, and those who are in this scene, the number of witnesses that have to see what's going on here. But it's true in our lives as well. That future glory that is certain that we wait for in Christ is also preceded by trials and difficulties. This is what Paul would mean when he say, our our present trials are not worth comparing to the eternal glory that they will produce. So before we even weigh that declaration, here's just the reality of the Christian life. Future glory will be preceded by present trials in Christ. And so you notice here in this scene in verse 33, there's the present suffering of Martha and Mary. Their brother is dead. And and Jesus has come after he's been dead for four days. Both of them ask the same question. And it's often debated, were the intentions of each the same? Because we know that in a previous scene, Martha is portrayed slightly differently than Mary. Although in this case, they both say the same thing. If, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. Um, you could argue certainly displaying a faith, a love, a trust in God. But notice in verse 33, you have a bunch of people weeping. Uh, The word weeping is a strong one. Uh, It means wailing. So if you think of the typical mode of grief in ancient times, certainly in the scriptures, um, to, to wail and express one's grief audibly. So in this scene, here is evidence of the effects of present trials and difficulties. But what should trigger and catch our attention most is What it says about Jesus in verse 33, because as Jesus saw and heard their weeping, it says that he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And I want to rest for a moment on those two words, uh, that he was deeply moved in spirit. Uh, This is a word that means to display very strong emotion. But not necessarily, maybe what we might think of here is not just empathy or sorrow, but, but the word can actually mean indignation or anger, wrath. So just kind of let that think for a minute and settle in. What what could it mean that Jesus, as he looked at this scene of grieving, as he saw the present effects of sin, that, that he was angry, that, that he had a righteous indignation. Uh, the, the same word that's rendered there deeply moved appears in the Old Testament. So when you think of the Old Testament being translated into the Greek, that's the Septuagint, well the same word is translated in the Septuagint from the Old Testament as as fury to be furious. And then it says Jesus was not just deeply moved in spirit, but the second word, he was troubled. This is the same word in John 14, when Jesus says to his disciples, let not your heart be troubled. In other words, let it not be distressed. So here Jesus, as the God-man, appears to be righteously angry, at what he's seeing take place here. And he's also distressed at this. So that that kind of brings us to the next verse, verse 35. Uh, And sadly, this verse is often just known because it's the shortest verse in the Bible. So in Trivial Pursuit, you could win the wedge here if it asks for the shortest verse. Two words, Jesus wept. But packed into this, is why was he weeping now? And we said that Martha, Mary, and all their friends, all were now gathered at or near the gravesite, all weeping. But when it says that Jesus weeps, it's not the same word that's used to describe Mary, Martha, and the others weeping. This word is more just simply to shed tears. Not not like the loud wailing part, but, but the silence of, of tears running down Jesus' cheeks. So, bringing all these pieces together, then let me kind of ask you the rhetorical question Why would Jesus be filled with wrath and weeping at this scene? It wasn't because he didn't know that he would raise Lazarus again. He already knew that, that's why he was going there. And so you can kind of present, well, maybe Jesus was weeping because he realized that even this would be rejected by many. And that's possible. You see, there's a mixed reaction as you read a little further in John 11, when all of this is done. But I think probably even greater than that, Jesus is filled with anger and righteous indignation Because he's seeing firsthand the effects of sin, that death is the result of sin. And he's seeing the pain that it creates and causes. So in one sense, for us, when we we hear reports of numbers of people who have died from the coronavirus, that should remind us that, that death is the result of sin coming into our world. Not that the virus is God's judgment on all mankind, but, but ultimately it is the result of sin in our world. And so Jesus here, as he looks at this, as he is very much aware, I think in addition, that what's going on here foreshadows his own coming death soon, where, where he will take on the burden and weight of all sin, that he is moved here to anger, as well as to deep sadness. Because notice this immediately leads him to say, where have you laid in? And I don't believe Jesus is saying that as if he's completely ignorant. He has no idea of anything here. But, but it moves him to action. So the present pain and suffering, though, as we'll quickly see in this scene, is changed by a triumphant declaration and announcement. So we've had a purposeful delay an intentional delay. And now we have this triumphant declaration in the midst of a painful scene. And the declaration is in verses 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. And notice as you read those verses, Jesus does not say, that you won't die, but he says, even those who die will live. So right away in that declaration, once again, the I am, a clear pointing back to the significance of the I am, the claims of deity, the title that belongs to Jehovah. But then Jesus is reminding us, as he did in the sayings, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, that all life originates and comes from him. Isn't it interesting in this scene, what did Jesus do to bring Lazarus back to life? He just spoke. Does that remind you of any scene in Genesis? How did everything come into being? How did life begin? God spoke. And it was. And notice in that declaration, it says, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. So we've had this word believe come up now in this scene, as well as through the gospel, numerous times. And it does mean to place your trust, your confidence in, but it points to a repeated action, a continual trusting in him. So it's not merely some card somebody fills out that says, I believe Jesus died for my sins. It's not even attending a resurrection or Easter Sunday service and listening to the music and singing along. Whoever lives and believes in me is speaking about a continual relationship that is there. And it's very similar. Think of the same writer of the Gospel of John in the book of Revelation, When he receives this vision of God's glory and the triumphant end of completion of everything in Christ, then in Revelation 1.18, you find Jesus saying to John that I am alive forever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. But look at me at verses 43 through 44 in this declaration and in this scene. In verse 43, we read, uh, when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Now, every word in scripture is God-breathed, is important. Uh, In narratives, we don't want to focus on just one detail to the ignorance of others, But it's strikingly that Jesus cried out in a loud voice. Uh, And you want to think, why? Why why would he make sure that he spoke this declaration with, with clarity? Well, it attests to his authority over everything, visible and invisible. But we're given one answer, and that is Jesus prayed and spoke loudly, purposely, to be heard by others. That those who were standing by needed to understand where was this power and authority coming from, and and who was he in relationship to the Father. But there may also be another element that also speaks of why Jesus called out in a, a loud voice. Uh, that there were many pagan rituals and uh, practices, sorcery, and things like that in the first century. But typically, those pagans who practice those things spoke their incantations and spells in, in whispers and in muttered utterances. In other words, Jesus was also distinguishing himself from any other kind of possible claims of supernatural power that pagans did by articulating very clearly for all to hear, not just his prayer, But but the very words, they they were not said to be secret. It was not as if, if you just recite these words, you can bring anybody back to the dead. What's interesting is when Jesus tells his disciples that Lazarus is dead and and they're going to go see him, he uses the singular pronoun that I will wake him up. Not we're all going to go and we'll all wake him up together. But <clears throat> I will wake him up because only he is the resurrection and the life. So this declaration that was preceded by a delay has full power and authority. And you notice in John eleven thirty seven, even in this scene, there are some people as they watch this before Lazarus is brought out of the tomb, There are some saying, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? In other words, they misunderstood the question. It was never a question of power. It was a question of purpose. And you will meet people today like that, who who in the midst of whether it be a virus, in the midst of some situation going on, will kind of be like, where's God in this? If God could do anything, why doesn't he stop this? And they're doing the same thing. They're misunderstanding. The question is never that he does not have the power to. You're focusing on the wrong thing. It's what is his purpose? So we've looked at delay. We've looked at the subject of declaration. But there's a piece in this that I think sometimes we miss as we proclaim the resurrection. And that is the decision the response that this declaration requires. And so you see in this scene that chapter 11 began with Lazarus being sick, but it ends in a very different way. In other words, that when you think of the decision, the reality of the resurrection demands a response, that one of the responses sadly is unbelief and rejection. In other words, John tells us, if you look at verse 45, uh, therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, put their faith in him. But, and then we realize that although there were those there that did believe, even as these witnesses took the cloth off of Lazarus and could see he was alive and whole and well again, that there were those that went back to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees concluded the most irrational contra-evidence decision possible, and that was this Jesus must die. In other words, their response, their decision to this evidence was unbelief and rejection. Ironically, even in that decision that Jesus must die, that it had to happen, And they would do everything possible. The Sanhedrin, which is made up of both Pharisees and Sadducees who who were not friendly toward each other but had a common enemy in Christ, that Caiaphas, the high priest, stands up in that group as John 11 toward the end of the chapter tells us and Caiaphas makes this bold statement that he did not intend to be true, but it was. He said, wouldn't it be better if one died for everyone than everyone had to die? And isn't that exactly what Jesus fulfilled, that he came to die that not everyone would have to die for their sins? So the one response is certainly we think of those who have rejected Christ, who who, In spite of all the evidence, walk away and say, It just couldn't happen. It's too unexplainable. I just cannot believe that. And they walk away. But the second response should be continual belief and increasing holiness. So now we come back to the word I asked you to sort of hold on to. When Jesus would say, You need to believe. What he was calling, as we'll see, his disciples to, Mary and Martha, was a growing belief in the reality of the resurrection, a deepening growth and trust in Christ. And I wonder sometimes if that's a component that, as Christians, we miss in the resurrection. It's not just a message that the unsaved need to hear, those who have responded with unbelief and rejection. But it's a a clarion call to every Christian. Are you continually growing? Are you moving toward greater holiness in your life because of the fact Jesus Christ is a risen Lord? So go back with me to verse 15, Luke 11 and verse 15, and understand the word believe now in the context of continually trusting and growing in holiness. Where Jesus says to his disciples, Lazarus is dead and for your sake, I was glad I was not there so that you may believe. Jesus was saying this delay is actually God's work he wants to do in you. Notice he says, it's not for my sake that this delay happened. It's not that I was too tired and I needed to kind of refuel before we went. But this delay is that you might grow in holiness. How important this would be for when they would see Jesus Christ be crucified. that They would see him die. There would be evidence of that with the piercing of his side and the water mixed with blood. He was not just unconscious, he was dead. Shouldn't they have thought back, wait, we've seen this before in Lazarus, that he spoke. And the one who raised Lazarus is the very one who promised that he would rise again. So you have believe there. Look at verses 26 and 27 where you have the word spoken to Martha. Jesus makes that declaration in verse 25. Then in verse 26, he says, whoever lives and believes in me will, will never die. Do you believe this? Now, Martha clearly did believe in Christ. We could say she had that saving knowledge, but did that knowledge need to grow and expand? Because even after her response in verse 27, what she confesses is accurate. Those would be good standards. You're a Christian. You you know that he is the Christ. You know he's the Son of God. You know he's the promised Messiah. As great as that statement of faith is, notice what she says in verse 39 when Jesus says, take away the stone." Martha responds, the sister of the dead man, it's good to smell. In other words, what happened to that thought that Jesus could do anything? Is really the smell the thing you want to bring up at this juncture? Could it be that even Martha, who had a sound faith, like I think Mary did, that that faith still needed to be developed? that she needed to understand in a much deeper way, who is this one who stands and speaks before her? And so the reality is that the resurrection is not just a message for those who don't know Christ, for those who have responded in unbelief and rejection. It's a message that should also demand from each one of us a continual response of growing belief and increasing holiness. I was reminded as we we kind of watch the news and listen to the news, uh, that it's not unique that the church has gone through periods in the world where there have been plagues, sicknesses, uh, and devastating catastrophes. And it's often in those that you find that the church responds by driving us back to our security in Christ. Uh, And one of the the tools that has done that often are things called catechisms. Uh, You know, the development of questions and answers that Christians would memorize and commit. Uh, And one of those is the Heidelberg Catechisms written in the 16th century. And it begins with this question, and that is, what is your only comfort in life and death? So, we live in a world where we've just said there there is a delay. There is a gap between the already and the not yet. So, what is your greatest comfort in life or in death? And the response that should be given to that is that I belong, body and soul, in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That my greatest comfort, my greatest joy and security in life is that I know I belong in body and soul, in life and death, to my Savior, Jesus Christ. That's all about the reality and the declaration that I am the resurrection and the life. So just like with the scene with Lazarus, this announcement always elicits a response from each of us but not a one-time response, but a daily response. And I would challenge all of us to think about that as believers in Christ every day. How are we responding to this? How, How is it promoting in us a greater hunger for God, greater hunger for holiness in our own life? Because as we said, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Uh, let me let me pray with, with us together as a church family. Heavenly Father, we rejoice that we serve a risen Savior. And we are reminded, as Paul has said, if the resurrection has not happened, that our faith is meaningless, the word of God is empty, and we have nothing to live for, we have no hope, for those who have died and gone before us. But we thank you that what happened with Lazarus foreshadowed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But unlike Lazarus, you would never put on those grave clothes again because you are a living and a risen savior. Lord, as your people, we come before you in need of your grace, in need of your Holy Spirit, to do the work in us that we cannot do on our own. That, Lord, every day we would consider the resurrection. That we would ask ourselves, how do you desire to make that a growing reality in our conversations, in our actions, not just with others in our own church, but within the body of Christ throughout the Upper Valley, within our interaction with those who presently stand as those who have rejected this announcement and declaration. Lord, thank you that although we do have present sufferings and present difficulties and trials, that these precede the glory that awaits us. But we pray for your strength. I do pray for Gene's family as he's had two different cousins pass away in the last week, uh, that you would somehow use his testimony and their assurance in the hope of the resurrection uh, to challenge and comfort those who might ask them uh, about these deaths. Uh, Lord, for others that are concerned, again, with economic factors of, of job situations and transitions, that we would learn that the resurrection impacts how we respond to these. That, Lord, we come before a Savior who has demonstrated his love for us and that Christ died while we were still sinners. Uh, Lord, I pray for your continued work in each of us in Christ, uh, that the reality of the resurrection would not just be a celebration today because it's Easter Sunday, but that we would realize that this changes and transforms us into your image. Thank you that you have not only saved us, but you have called us to be holy. You have called us your friends, but you have also called us to serve you. And so, Lord, may we each continue to look for ways to serve you this week, uh, to follow up with our brothers and sisters in Christ, Um, To take time out of our schedules to express our love, whether it be through emails, text messages, phone calls, FaceTiming, Lord, on our knees in prayer for one another. Lord, give us a greater hunger for your word, to want to read it, to be able to retain it, uh, to have the discipline to think about it. Uh, to not just expect that everything we read will be easy for us to digest, but, Lord, to wrestle with the weightier matters in your word, uh, because by doing that, that we will grow in holiness, we will grow in spiritual maturity, and we will reflect the image of Christ more clearly, which is so desperately needed in the world around us today. Heavenly Father, none of us knows what this week holds for us. You may bring people into our life who are hurting, uh, who have no sense of hope, who have loved ones who are sick, or even loved ones who have died, and they're asking questions. May we know your word. May you equip us that we would speak to those needs with both gentleness, but also, Lord, a true fear, realizing that this message we will be held accountable to for how we have shared it with the world around us. Lord, I do pray for our community. pray that you would continue to give our elected officials, our selectmen and others, wisdom they need in knowing when the timing is best to uh, reopen many public buildings. We pray for our legislators as well in that process that they might be humbled. Lord, we ask that we would not look at the situation we're in right now as merely negative, but see it as an opportunity to renew in us the importance of uh, when we are able to physically get together, to be able to have the Lord's Supper together. Uh, What a joy that will be, what an excitement that should be for us. We would also see this as a time that you are challenging your church Uh, to look for ways to be able to connect with the world and connect with one another in ways maybe that we haven't pursued before. But necessity now makes that necessary. Lord, we thank you that your church will prevail, uh, that even the gates of hell that will seek to stop it and prevent it from growing uh, will be proven futile. So, Lord, it is in that reality of the resurrection that we, as the people of God, ask that we would live in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that Christ is risen, and let all his people say, he is risen indeed. Amen.